As promised, a Black Friday edition of PFTPM. Now, disclaimer. I'm a creature of habit. I like my routine. I like every week to be the same. It gives me a rhythm. It gives me a comfort. It gives me a pattern to my life. Thanksgiving week turns everything upside down in a good way. It's great to have the holiday. We had a great time yesterday. Hope everybody else out there did as well. But it changes the way the week unfolds. Wednesday became the day that we do the Picks podcast, so there was no point doing PFTPM then. So it gets postponed to Friday when I usually don't do much, if any, video or audio once we finish PFT Live in the morning. But there was no PFT Live this morning or yesterday morning. I was able to sleep a little bit, which was nice. Now we do PFTPM, mainly because I promised to do it a couple of weeks ago. That's the way you get yourself in trouble. You make a promise at a time when you aren't thinking about having to honor it. And I would like to go back currently to the version of me that promised to do this and kick him in the nuts because I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I gave my word and I'm just kind of kidding. If I really didn't want to do it, I would just not do it. Like, what are they going to do? Fire me because I didn't do the extra thing that I wasn't paid to do anyway because I changed my mind and didn't want to do it anyway. Here we are. By the way, before we go any farther, I do want to address just briefly. I had a fun interview on Tuesday with the guys at Pardon My Take, and we go way back. I've known those guys for years, since before they even started Pardon My Take, which is one of the most popular podcasts in any category. And I kind of knew what was coming because... I had seen enough on social media about Hank, their producer, or I don't know what his title is specifically. I think he's the producer. When they came here seven years ago, early in the life of Pardon My Take, he was involved in pulling everything together and getting everything working. And it really is a lot of hard work from a lot of people to make that show go, as as it is to do PFT Live and PFTM. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to throw shade accidentally. No strays being cast at the folks behind the scenes here. It's just when you see it unfold, when you're in the middle of it, you realize it's not just press play and then press another button and everything is, is uploaded and fine. They, they worked hard. They were up like all night. Hank and, and another guy, Buddha Ben, I think was his name anyway. Uh, but, but my point is, if, there, if I have one, and there's a good chance I don't, my point is I had picked up enough to know that Hank had some sort of an issue with the way I do things because he was using this derisive term fan fiction. And I was ready. I, I knew it was going to come up and I was ready to have the conversation with him because one thing to have your bully pulpit and say whatever you want to say about somebody, it's another thing to have to say it to them. And it did upset me and I'm saying it now. And if they want to continue the conversation, I'll happily go back on. The idea that we're just making things up for the sake of making things up, for the sake of engagement. Like if I was going to make stuff up, it would be a hell of a lot more interesting than the stuff that you see at PFT. And the process is actually pretty simple. And there's a point where it's on the reader to understand exactly what we're doing. The stories are worded a certain way. If we are reporting hard news, the language chosen in the drafting of the story communicates that fact. A source with knowledge of the situation tells PFT this. That's news that we are reporting if it's transactional or whatever. Now, we've gotten away from that transactional stuff for a couple of reasons. One, there's too many of the information robots swarming around all the time trying to get it five minutes before it's going to be announced anyway. 
Number two, you got to sell some of your soul to be in position to get that information. We've said that before. I'm not looking to piss off everybody today, but I mean, why stop now? But to be in position to get that five minute heads up from a team, from the league, from whoever, you got to play the game a certain way. You got to play it on their terms. You got to suck up to the right people at the right time. You can't say certain things or you get cut out. We've made that point time and again as it relates to being on the speed dial for the agents who leak to a certain group of folks, the fact that someone has signed a contract, and along with that, a description of the terms of the contract that are very favorable to the agent and the player. Not really favorable to the player, though, because it creates a false impression as to what the contract is really worth, but it's puffed up and nobody ever says boo. The ones who say boo end up getting kicked off of the text chain. So anyway, what's my point? This is going to be one of those days. I can already feel it. Anyway, my point is this. When we have hard news, we say so. When we are speculating, we say so. And I came up with the term kind of on the fly on Tuesday of informed speculation, because that is what we do. I'm, I'm just not sitting around saying, gee, I wonder what could happen with no basis whatsoever. And the longer I do this, I think the greater just the foundation I have to draw back on experience, things that have happened in the past, because there really are occasions that just kind of come back around again. The dynamics that cause one thing to happen will cause another thing to happen with a different team, different people. But it's that same human factor that causes things to happen. So I've got a 23-year bucket of living this and watching this and writing about it and talking about it as it happens. And we know that crazy shit is going to happen. We know that because crazy shit does happen. So I'm in a position where I can take the tea leaves, take the dots, connect it all together and try to explain to people where it's going to go. We don't know where it's going to go, but isn't that what we do? I mean, we try to talk about how we think a game is going to play out. Well, I try to talk from time to time or write from time to time about how I think a situation is going to play out based upon the information that's out there. And again, if I was just going to make it all up, it would be a hell of a lot more entertaining and a hell of a lot more designed to engage the audience than what we do. What we do is just whatever falls in front of us, whatever's out there that catches my attention, I'll write about it or talk about it. And there are times, it happens a couple of times a year, where there's something that I wanted to get ahead of the curve on and I forgot to do it. And the thing that I was going to get ahead of the curve on ended up happening. And that just pisses me off when it happens because it's like I've been sitting around for the last couple of weeks waiting to write this story about I think X is going to happen and then X happens. And it's like, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. So and also too, also remember this. I didn't make this point on Tuesday. I got to get on to the, the reason that we're here today. But sometimes what you will see when we are saying this could happen, sometimes that's the direct result of somebody in the know who tells me what's going to happen and says, just write that as your own idea. Don't even say a source told you. That's a way that the source gets an extra layer of protection. Now, the problem is I don't want to create the impression that every time I say this could happen, that means somebody's telling me, hey, this is going to happen. Just couch it as your own idea. But that, that happens all the time throughout NFL media, and I would assume it happens throughout all sports media, where a source seeking extra protection for himself or herself says, just put that out there as your own idea. 
and then it comes to fruition. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a win. It's my idea. And, you know, part of it is that complicated dance that you engage in with sources. You want the information, you want to be able to use it, but you don't want the source to get burned or you don't want the source to be compromised. And if the source is uncomfortable, that characterizing the information as coming from a source will actually out the source in a roundabout way, especially if not many people know about a given thing that's going to happen. That's what you have to do to get the information out there to the audience. And at the end of the day, my primary obligation is to you, the audience. And I'm always going to be straight with you. I'm going to be candid with you. I'm going to be honest with you about what I know and what I think is going to happen. With the caveat that sometimes when I say something could happen, it could be that there's a source that has told me it will happen, but the source wants the extra layer of protection that comes from not saying a source with knowledge of the situation says X, Y, or Z. All right, let's get to A, B, and C from week 12, the three games that were played on Thanksgiving Day. We'll start with the Packers and the Lions. Obviously, who saw that coming? I had concerns about the Lions' defense going into the game. I thought the win over the Bears on Sunday was enough of a shot across the bow that would wake the Lions up, that would get them ready for a Packers team that they beat handily in Green Bay earlier this year, that they'd be prepared, that they'd be focused, that they'd be driven, that there was kind of a celebratory air in Detroit, eight and two for the first time since John F. Kennedy was the president in 1962. That's the last time the Lions were eight and two. A chance to display to the world in a standalone spot what the Lions are all about, a chance to get another win, and move closer to maybe the number one seed in the NFC. They only have one game, well, other than losing yesterday. They only had one game going into yesterday that should have given them real concern. Dallas Week 17, they 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 failed, obviously, 29 to 22. And look, I credit the Packers, and this is the time of year where the teams that we look at and say they're bad, they can be dangerous because they just don't care. We're just going to go out there and we're going to be loose because we already are done. The season is already over. Although maybe the Packers could, could, you know, make a move on the outside. When you look at the standings in the NFC, you see some of these teams sink. It does create an opportunity for a late run by a team like the Packers. But their mindset is we've already found ourselves in the midst of a bad year. So, you know, for, I, I think I said on the picks podcast earlier this week, this is kind of the bowl game for the Packers. Like this is it. This is all anybody is probably going to care about from the green Bay Packers for the rest of the year. And they came out from the get go. How many times do you see a team nowadays win the toss and take the ball? Usually. And I don't know what the percentage is, but usually it's, we win the toss and we defer the option. So they end up kicking to start the game and they end up getting the ball to start the third quarter because everybody wants to do that Bill Belichick touchdown halftime touchdown thing because that goes a long way toward winning a game but no the Packers said we want the ball but what was it Matt Hasselbeck said in the playoff game in Green Bay Seahawks Packers some 19 years ago we'll take the ball and we're going to score well that's what the Packers did and they scored and they set the tone now the Lions scored but then the Packers scored and then Jared Goff became turnover machine part two he has three lost fumbles from Thanksgiving to go with his three interceptions from Sunday. That's a bad week. Look, I don't need high-end analytics to tell me. Six turnovers from Sunday to Thursday is a bad week. And it was a bad week for Jared Goff. And really the question is, are we seeing the Jared Goff that the Rams decided they had to get rid of? 
because that was it. That was the story. They did a great job of hiding that within the Matthew Stafford trade package. Matthew Stafford for Jared Goff plus two first round picks and a third round pick. I mean, when you look at that, it's like, my God, that's a lot for Matthew Stafford. Boy, they really must want Matthew Stafford to give up their franchise quarterback, two first round picks and a third round pick. The truth is they wanted to offload Jared Goff's contract and they threw in the extra first round pick to get the Lions to take on Goff's contract. That's what makes this trade so great for the Lions because I truly believe that they viewed this as, okay, we'll take Goff, we'll pay him, we get these extra draft picks, we're kind of regrouping, rebuilding, that implies there was ever anything there that you would try to rebuild. There hasn't been much there for decades. We'll do something over the next couple of years with Goff, and then we'll get rid of him when we can. And somewhere along the way to that plan being fully implemented, Goff turned into a better quarterback than what he had been in his latter years with the Rams. But now that the Lions are becoming a good team, now we see the wobble in Goff. And look, I'm a firm believer Goff falls into that category of quarterbacks. And there's no shame in this. Not everybody's going to be Patrick Mahomes. Not everybody's going to be Lamar Jackson. Not everybody is going to be among the best of the best. You've got your top quarterbacks. And then you've got your second cut of guys who are good enough to make you competitive, but they're not good enough to win you a championship unless you just have all pros all around him, particularly on defense, but also on offense to make him look better. You know, it's the old USC approach. Like, all these great quarterbacks coming out of USC, why aren't they great in the NFL? Well, because they have all these great players around them at USC that make them look better. You have enough great players around you, you're going to look better. When it's time for you to carry the load, when it's time for you to make the big throw, when it's time for you to make the tough decision in a very challenging spot, are you doing it? And now the spotlight is getting brighter on the Lions. What's happening to Goff? He's crumbling. Will he turn it around? And how often do we see this where... It's word salad, word salad, word salad. Oh, we're going to work hard. We're going to try harder. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. The bottom line is six turnovers between Sunday and Thursday. That's not good. And they still have winnable games down the stretch, but they do have that Viking Cowboy sandwich coming up where the bread is two games against the Vikings and the meat is an ass kicking that's coming in Dallas week 17, Saturday night. Hell of a game. That's the night they're putting Jimmy Johnson in the ring of honor, not December 30, 1923, but December 30, 2023. Jimmy Johnson into the ring of honor and a tough, tough test for the Lions. And I think what yesterday told us is we can forget about the one seed for the Lions. It's looking like three seed, whoever wins the NFC North. And frankly, if the Vikings hadn't outplayed, but not outscored the Broncos on Sunday night, now you got a race in the NFC North. And there may still be one because the Vikings have a chance to pick up two games on the Lions late in the year. Whoever wins that division is going to be the three seed. I mean, we kind of see where this is going. Either the NFC East champion, which will be the Cowboys or the Eagles, or the 49ers will be the one seed. The other will be the two seed. The NFC North champion will be the three seed. The NFC South champion will be the four seed. And the second place team in the NFC East, Cowboys or Eagles, will go to probably the Superdome to play the Saints in the wildcard round and probably win. But when you go into the Superdome, who knows? We could have a beast quake situation where the lesser team with the kick in the ass that comes from that home crowd beats the better team because the better team was forced to go play in the building of the lesser team. I don't know how much of an issue that is anymore because I feel like teams have figured out how to win on the road 
home field advantage doesn't mean what it used to. Maybe it's fans traveling, the whole emergence of the legal scalping industry where you can just get online and you can make your plans and you can be a Cowboys fan and go see that playoff game on the road in New Orleans. Enough of those road fans neutralizes it just enough where it's not an issue. I don't know. Or the teams just know how to process and prepare better so they aren't overwhelmed by the noise. Either way, home field advantage isn't what it used to be. So maybe it won't be a factor for that fifth seed in the NFC. But regardless, the Lions now looking like three seeded best after yesterday's game. That's my big takeaway. And the question I have, will Jared Goff be able to compete with a team like the Eagles, the Cowboys, the 49ers, if they even get that far? The Lions could be that team that wins the division, gets the three seed, welcomes to town the Vikings, the Rams, whoever the sixth seed ends up being. And the Rams are very viable. Maybe the Seahawks come back. The Lions could be that team that, knowing full well what's coming the next week, maybe stubs their toe and loses at home in the wild card round, like the Vikings did last year to the Giants. And for the winner of that game, we knew what was coming. An ass-kicking in Philadelphia. That's what happened to the Giants. If the Lions see that coming, maybe they don't punch that that final ticket to advance to the division around just because they kind of know, they kind of know how this movie's going to end. I mean, I feel like, and this was my theory on the Vikings last year for them, the best case scenario for the season was to get blown out in the divisional round. I kind of feel like that may be where the lions are heading. And I say that not just because of golf, the defense is suspect. That's a point Sims made on PFT live, even though the lions defense had seen better most of the year, they hadn't been tested. They've been tested lately, and they've been failing. The defense has not looked good. 38 points. I mean, think about this. Lions coming off of their bye, facing the Chargers, who had played a tough physical game on a Monday night in New Jersey and flew home on a short week and still scored 38 points against the Lions' defense when the Lions had two weeks to get ready for the game. That was the red flag. They won that game, but that was the red flag. And they beat the Bears when they were down 12 points with five minutes left. That second red flag and then, obviously, third red flag, picking up their third loss of the year, losing to the Green Bay Packers. Jordan Love, all of a sudden, looking pretty damn good. And I've been pushing back all year, and Jordan Love made it difficult to push back when he wasn't playing well. But the idea that Jordan Love just stinks, we don't know what he does. We don't know who he is. He's the one sympathetic figure in this entire mess that has been the Green Bay Packers since they traded up and picked Love in the 2020 draft. This Shakespearean battle between Aaron Rodgers and the front office. And Love is just caught in the middle. He's the only one that didn't choose to be part of this mess. And he sits on the bench for three years. And now he's thrust into service as potentially the third great franchise quarterback over the last 30 years in Green Bay from Favre to Rodgers to Love. It's going to take a little time. Rodgers wasn't great right out of the gates. You need reps, you need time, you need opportunities. And the problem is we, and I'm not saying this is bad. It just is what it is. It's not fair to the players to not have the time to develop, but it doesn't matter. They are so quickly disposable, even first round picks. You get it done right away or you're gone. Sink or swim now. And you've got to a rock tied around your waist as you try to do it when you're a first-round quarterback because the expectations are so much higher. That's why I keep coming back to this idea of trade up for a quarterback 
at your own risk because you're putting the kid in a tough spot. You're putting a lot of pressure on him. And Jordan Love has a ton of pressure on him in a different way. He's the guy that was drafted to replace Aaron Rodgers. He's the guy who sat there for three years waiting for his chance. He's the guy who finally gets his opportunity after all that time of having to be Aaron Rodgers' understudy. And people expect him to be great right out of the gates. And sometimes it takes a little time. He's rounding into form. And he's giving the Packers reason for hope for next year. And it's just a shame. Now, I I guess the other way to look at it is, well, if he can't deal with that, then he's never going to take you to a Super Bowl because he doesn't have the the fortitude to handle the stress and the pressure and the scrutiny. But still, it's never been fair to the kid to just write him off before he even had a chance to play. And there was some of that before the season. He can't play. How do we know? We haven't seen it. Yesterday, played pretty well. Yesterday, he looked pretty good. Yesterday, he gave the Packers reason to believe that maybe they are onto something and that this isn't going to be the new normal where they go back to being the team they were between Lombardi and Favre, where they just were bad. They just were bad. There'd be like a fluke playoff appearance once a decade, but they had 20 years of bad after Lombardi and before Favre came along. And I think there's reason to believe that this won't be another extended stretch of we just are the Green Bay Packers who once upon a time were a great team and come to our stadium. It's really nice and historic, but the team that plays there isn't very good now. There's a chance they could figure this out. One last point from that early game. And this was something that Greg Olson spotted in real time. MDS wrote about it. The fair catch at the end of the half, the Packers could have done the rarely used free kick and I know about the free kick from 1973. Back then, when we didn't have a lot of the stuff that we have now, we had three TV channels and go outside and get some fresh air. That was our life. And yeah, you had Legos and Lincoln Logs and you had electric football, which was both the best and the worst all at the same time. But there wasn't a lot to do. And there wasn't a lot of ways to get information about the NFL. The NFL was this fascinating thing to me that there were two games on Sunday afternoon and one on Monday night. And then it was gone again until the next Sunday. And I wanted to know more about it. And they had the NFL films show like the game of the week or whatever NFL films presents, whatever it was where they would have highlights or whatever. And I would soak that stuff up whenever I could, could make sure I was home to watch it because You had to be home in front of the TV at the time the show was on or it was gone forever and you never saw it again unless they played it again and you happened to be home in front of the TV at the time. Couldn't record it, couldn't watch it when you wanted. You had to be there. You had to be there, TV on, power on, cable not out. That was a dynamic we had back in the 70s. Sometimes the cable would just be out and there wasn't anything we could do about it other than wait. You couldn't tweet, hey, the cable's out. You just had to wait for the cable to come back on. Go back to doing nothing while you wait. One of the things you do while you wait, you read a book. So we used to, order books in school they'd send out the sheet and you'd order the book and you'd bring in your three dollars and 47 cents for five books and and then like a couple of weeks later the box would show up and it was always an exciting day when the box showed up with the books in it the box would sit there on the teacher's desk and you know there's some stuff in that box for me there's some cool stuff in that box for me and there were NFL related books. It was the pump, pass, and kick library. Anyway, I'm eventually getting to the point, Your Honor. That I, I, yeah, yes, I am going somewhere with this. There was a book I bought back in 1973 called, and I thought it was called Strange But True Stories of the NFL. 
It was actually more strange, but true. It was the sequel. The first one did well enough that they made another one. More strange, but true stories of the NFL. They had a chapter in there about a free kick happening. And the free kick is a, a little tweak in the rules where after a fair catch, the team that makes the fair catch can opt to put the ball on a tee with the opposing team at least 10 yards away. And from the spot of the fair catch, if you kick it through the uprights, you get three points. That rule is still on the books. It hasn't happened in years. I think it hasn't been since the 70s that someone actually did it. But yesterday, the Packers, just before halftime, could have done it. It would have been, it was a fair catch on their own 44. And because you don't have a snap involved, you kick it from that point and you don't have a rush and you don't have snap spot hold and a quick run up to the kick. You can do what we see happen all the time from the kickoff when it's at the 35. Not all the time, but we will see from time to time, kickoff from the 35, ball goes through the uprights. Well, this is kickoff from the 44. And if the ball goes through the uprights, it's three points. What did the Packers do instead? They ran a play, called timeout, and tried a 63-yard field goal. Snap spot, hold, rush. It was short, but I guarantee you, if you kick a 63-yard field goal out of the normal formation and it's a little bit short, and it was maybe a few yards short because there was an attempt to return it, but a 66-yarder with no rush, on the tee, full run-up like a kickoff, that's got a damn good chance going through. That was a missed opportunity by the Green Bay Packers. It ended up not mattering. They won the game. But it just goes to show you that you need to be aware of that. And in the, it doesn't happen very often, but you need to have that little file in your brain. I mean, that's what our brain really is. It's just like a filing cabinet, and you hope that the right drawer opens at the right time. So for a coach, and I guarantee you Matt LaFleur will be thinking about this the next time, and anybody who was watching that game yesterday got a reminder of the existence of this rule. Fair catch, where's the spot, how far, let's do the free kick. And uh, it would have been something if they had lost that game, that that three points might have made a difference that they didn't get at the end of the half. But remember the free kick after the fair catch. Think about that because it is viable, even though it is rarely used. All right, Commanders Cowboys. I keep checking to see if we're getting news that Ron Rivera has been fired. Nothing yet. Nothing yet. And I don't know that he's going to be, and I'm not saying he should be. I like Ron Rivera. I know Ron Rivera. I was a Ron Rivera supporter back when he was a defensive coordinator of the Chargers, and I said, hey, somebody in the AFC South should make him the head coach because he had Peyton Manning's number back in those days. He ended up coaching the Panthers. He's won coach of the year at least twice. Took a team to a Super Bowl. Oh, Jack Del Rio is fired. Jack Del Rio is out. Well, multiple reports apparently, or at least one for now. Wait, let me text my crew. Jack Del Rio, a little dust up in D.C. Jack Del Rio is out, which would tend to suggest that Ron Rivera isn't, at least for now. Their buy is still coming up. Maybe this is his last chance to get it together before Eric Bieniemy gets the audition to be the future head coach by finishing the year as the interim head coach. So many would say that Jack Del Rio getting fired is long overdue. But, you know, the reality is Ron Rivera is a defensive coach, too, and it sticks to him. If the defensive performance sticks to Del Rio, it sticks to Rivera. So I just think this 
this is a precursor to, and I'm going to pull up the commander schedule here while I do this. Pardon the multitasking, but I don't have their schedule down the stretch memorized. But what they have after this game is the Dolphins at home Sunday, December 3rd. The 3rd, the 3rd. Then they're by. Week 14 by. That may be literally by for Ron Rivera. I think that's what this is. This is, I think I used the phrase shot across the bow earlier in connection with the Lions. This Del Rio firing is shot across the bow to Rivera. Dolphins game, lose that, give up a lot of points to Tyreek Hill and company. Bye-bye, Ron Rivera. And then it's Rams, Jets, 49ers, Cowboys as an opportunity for Eric Bieniemy to show that he can that he can run the show. And I think it's a great opportunity for him, whether he would stay with the commanders or go somewhere else. I think it's a service to the league at large to give him four games where he he's the interim head coach and we see what he can do. Now, I, I, I do need to repeat one of my usual concerns here. When you make a guy an interim coach, there's a chance you're going to get a false bump in the performance of the team because they want to play well so the interim coach becomes the permanent coach. And then once the interim coach becomes the permanent coach, they go back to playing the way they did. They got the last coach fired. That always concerns me. It doesn't happen very often that interim coach becomes successful year in and year out head coach. I think it's happened twice with Jason Garrett and Jeff Fisher. Beyond that, it's usually just a matter of time before the interim coach becomes the permanent coach is not the permanent coach for very long. So Del Rio out. Rivera likely in charge of the defense. They'll presumably make someone else the coordinator. But I think that this is the appetizer to Ron Rivera being out if they lose in ugly fashion to the Miami Dolphins Sunday, December 3rd, week 13, 1 o'clock Eastern at FedEx Field. Here's hoping the showers work that day. So yesterday, the Cowboys did exactly what I thought they were going to do. I picked 42 to 14. Final score was 45 to 10. Yeah, the commanders keep it close. Look, these are NFL teams. They're going to give you moments where you think, hey, maybe today's the day. But the Cowboys are just too good. And the Cowboys at home, 13 wins in a row now. They just overpower everyone. Dak Prescott is putting himself into the thick of the MVP discussion if they get the one seed. Look, this is this is very simple. We can talk about who the MVP candidates are, but unless Dak Prescott goes off and throws for 6,000 yards, the Cowboys need to be the one seed for him to be a serious MVP candidate. Because if the Eagles are the one seed, if they win the division, it's going to be Jalen Hurts. That's just the way it works. If the 49ers are the one seed, Christian McCaffrey becomes the candidate for MVP. Maybe Brock Purdy, but it's more likely McCaffrey at this point. If the Lions are the one seed, who the hell knows? I think it makes it more likely that someone from the one seed in the AFC wins the MVP, whether that's Patrick Mahomes, if the Chiefs do it, Lamar Jackson, if the Ravens do it, Tua Tagovailoa or Tyreek Hill, if the Dolphins do it, Josh Allen, if somehow the Bills do it, and Miles Garrett, if the Browns do it. So, yes, Dak could be the MVP, but they got to catch the Eagles before he'll be the MVP. Yesterday, he had 331 passing yards, four touchdowns, no picks, and a 142.1 passer rating. Dak is getting it done. And Deron Bland is getting it done. Record-setting fifth pick six. I wrote about this earlier because there's talk now of Deron Bland being defensive player of the year. I'm not ready to go there because let's be real about this. 
pick six is the ultimate right place at the right time play. And yeah, he's gotten five of them, but it's right place at the right time. He was in the right place at the right time, and he did great things with the ball as a runner with the ball after making the interception. But if you're truly a shutdown corner, you're not getting the opportunities to have interceptions, much less pick sixes. That's the irony of all this. If he's viewed as a Deion Sanders, he's not going to have the opportunities to have pick sixes. Until the teams take him seriously, he'll keep having these opportunities. So the fact that he's had so many pick sixes is proof that he's not regarded by other teams as a guy who's truly an elite corner and therefore he can't be defensive player of the year. The evidence is the number of pick sixes. He's got too many interceptions to be treated as a serious defensive player of the year contender because they keep throwing at him. At a certain point, if you are the kind of guy, if you're the equivalent of a dominant pass rusher, they just don't throw to you. They take away half the field with your presence. And when you look at what the pass rushers are doing, Miles Garrett with 13 sacks, Daniil Hunter with 12 and a half, TJ Watt with 11 and a half, Michael Parsons, teammate of Deron Bland with 11 and a half. Parsons is a more a more fitting defensive player of the year candidate. So it adds to the discussion. And hey, if he adds a couple more, it may be inevitable. But I just think that the reality as it relates to defensive players, a pass rusher is far more dominant. A pass rusher is far more impactful. A pass rusher helps set up those pick sixes by getting the quarterback to rush the ball and throw it into a bad spot. And I'm not taking away anything from what Deron Bland has done. But again, Deion Sanders wouldn't have had five pick sixes. There's a reason why he's not on the list of the all-time, and maybe he is for all I know. Maybe even despite the fact that they rarely threw at him, he had enough to be on the list. But five is the record. Bland could have more. Who knows? I still think that Miles Garrett, Daniil Hunter, TJ Watt, Micah Parsons, all right now would be more viable candidates for defensive player of the year. Now, what could happen is, we see this on the offensive side all the time. There's one player who's offensive player of the year and another offensive player is MVP. And that never makes sense to me because you would think that if the MVP is an offensive player and it has been every year except three, 1971, Alan Page, 1982, a kicker, Mark Mosley, 1986, Lawrence Taylor. It's otherwise been a running back or a quarterback every year they've given it out. You would think the MVP would also be the offensive player of the year, but it's kind of a way to spread the wealth. So if Miles Garrett ends up being the MVP, if the Browns get the one seed in the AFC and Miles Garrett is the MVP candidate who gets a lot of votes and is in that conversation, whether he wins it or not, maybe the voters will say, well, okay, Deron Bland can be the defensive player of the year if Miles Garrett is my MVP. That's a possibility. And I'm one of the voters. And again, I don't know how detailed i'm allowed to get into my deliberations i don't know I, I don't know why it shouldn't be i'm i'm for transparency but i could see voters thinking mvp miles garrett deron bland defensive player of the year when the reality is if a defensive player is in the mvp conversation he's the defensive player of the year he is so i'm kind of talking this out and i'm talking myself out of this notion of splitting the baby between miles garrett and deron bland if miles garrett's mvp candidate He's defensive player of the year. And right now, that's who I'd vote for. If the season were to end today, and I, 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 I've come to love that saying because I hate it so much. The only way the season ends today is something really bad happens. We don't want the season to end today. 
The only way the NFL is abandoning the season is if some bad shit goes down. So let's not say if the season ends today. But if the season were to end today, I'd, I'd, I'd make Miles Garrett the defensive player of the year. All right. And hey, look, Cowboys are looking great. And Jerry Jones was all, you know, hey, oh, this is one of my greatest. That's one of my greatest days ever. As a Cowboys owner. Well, no. Let's not get too caught up in what happens on Thanksgiving. You still got plenty of games left and you're still behind the Eagles. And you kind of saw your chance to close the gap go away on Monday night when the Eagles beat the Chiefs. You got to hope the Bills have something for the Eagles. You got to hope the 49ers have something for the Eagles. And you got to hope you beat the Eagles when they come to Dallas week 14, I believe it is. Sunday night football. I know that when they play again, it's Sunday night football on NBC and Peacock. But you know, the Cowboys could win that game and still not ultimately catch the Philadelphia Eagles to win the division. All right. Uh, it looked like the Seahawks at one point were going to catch and surpass the 49ers in the NFC West. The Seahawks were holding steady. The 49ers lost three in a row when they had some key guys injured. But last night, 31 to 13, the 49ers show that they are, in my opinion, and I get the question, okay, if you're going to say they're the best team in football, why aren't they number one in your power rankings? Well, because they've lost three games, because for them, what makes them great makes them susceptible to losing games. Because what makes them great is having players who have no fear whatsoever, no regard for their own safety or well-being. They will run through the wall. They will fight and scratch and claw for every last piece of real estate on a football field. And that, that effort for that extra little bit that's what gets that last hit. That's what gets that injury. I remember that's what happened to Debo Samuel when he got injured. You take Debo Samuel out of the mix, you take Trent Williams out of the mix, all of a sudden the 49ers can't win games. So when they're healthy, they're the best team in the NFL. If they can somehow keep those guys healthy for the rest of the season and more importantly, the postseason, there's no stopping them. But the problem is, and it can happen at any time because of the way they play. If, if I was a 49ers fan, I would be eating Tums Maybe nonstop, but definitely during the games. Because every snap, you're, you're like the parent watching your kid play football. Every snap, oh, is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? Oh, he's okay. I went through that for years. Is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? Oh, he's okay. And if you're a 49ers fan, you're doing that with Debo Samuel. You're doing it with Christian McCaffrey. You're doing it with Brock Purdy. You're doing it with Trent Williams. You're doing it with Nick Bosa, Fred Warner. Dre Greenlaw, is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? Once those guys start getting injured, the team is not okay. The Seahawks are also not okay at this point. They've lost two in a row. They've been swept by the Rams. And when you look at the upcoming schedule, they're six and five. They were six and three five days ago, Sunday morning, getting ready to play the Rams. Here we are, six and three. Ooh, we could be eight and three by Black Friday. Nope, six and five. That's the, that's the worst thing about short week football. On a Sunday morning, you know what? By Friday, we're either going to be really happy or we're going to be really pissed. Seahawks fans really pissed at six and five. And the Cowboys are coming and the 49ers again and the Eagles. Six and five can become six and eight. They've got three winnable games at the back end and maybe nine and eight gets them the seventh seed. There's a lot of me mediocrity when we get past the 49ers, Eagles, Cowboys and Lions in the NFC. And obviously one team from the NFC South is going to make it. But the last two playoff spots the Seahawks could still lose the next three and win the final three and get in. But if they get in, let's say they make it as the seventh seed and they have to go to Philly or San Francisco. 
and I know any given Sunday, I know, I know, but there, there is a separation between the best teams in the NFC and the rest. And your only chance to score an upset of the two seed is if the two seed takes you so lightly and is so focused on next week's game that they just, you know, they, they get, they get caught flat footed and, and you can, you can knock them out. But, but then you're just, I mean, do we, do we really think, do we really think so? And and maybe it'll happen. Do we think someone other than the 49ers, Eagles or Cowboys is going to be the Super Bowl representative this year. And I know the Lions are a feel-good story, but do you really think the Lions are going to navigate that playoff field and beat two of those three teams? Or maybe all three of them? There's a way they would face all three of them, though I don't think it's likely because the Lions are going to be the three seed if they win the division. But uh, I just I just don't see it. Hey, the Lions can end up being the sixth seed and having to go on the road and play the likes of the 49ers or the Eagles earlier than later. Or they can have to, you know, you know what this is shaping up as. This is this is looking like three times in four weeks, Vikings and Lions are going to be playing each other. That's what it's looking like. Week 16, week 18, and wild card round. Because as I said earlier, the winner of that division is going to be the three seed. The second place team is probably going to be the six seed. That's probably what's going to happen. It's going to be Lions, Vikings, three times in four weeks. And uh, back-to-back weeks, week 18 and wild card round, and they'll be playing in the spot of the, the team that ends up winning the division. That's kind of depressing because, we, I mean, people don't, do people really want to see that? Do people want to see a team play another team, the same team, three times in four weeks? I don't know. Uh, one, one last point. Well, one last point about the Seahawks, and then there's something I forgot to say about the Commanders-Cowboys game. Geno Smith's future with the Seahawks has to be considered as in doubt at this point because of the contract. Remember, oh, three. this gets back to my point from earlier. The information robots are told three years, 105 million, and they just they spew that as if it's gospel. We get the real details and we explain when you look at this contract, it's a one-year deal. And then the Seahawks can move on with no penalty, no consequence. They just move on. They may. I don't know what they're going to do next year. But if they make the seventh seed and barely get in, or if they don't make the playoffs at all, they could move on from Geno Smith. They could. Don't know that they will, but they could. A lot of it depends upon what their other options are. But Geno Smith's time with the Seahawks could be over after this year. Keep an eye on that possibility. One last point about the Commanders and the Cowboys. The celebration. The turkey legs stashed in the Salvation Army kettle that was bedazzled this year. It wasn't just the regular kettle. It had bling. It had shine. It had glimmer. It looked like a holiday. It was sparkly like a holiday, as Rain Man once said. But this thing, and we had the story at PFT. It was set up days in advance. Dak Prescott went and lobbied to Mike McCarthy for permission to do it. McCarthy's only request was, it better not happen unless the game is well in hand. Prescott was smart. He asked McCarthy in the presence of Jerry Jones. He knew Jerry Jones was going to be in favor of it. You know, it's kind of like knowing when to work your parents for that thing you want. You know which parent is more likely to say yes. And if you just get him at the right time, the one that's more likely to say yes is going to prevail on the one that's more likely to say no. You get what you want. So, look, I assume fines are going to be handed out because that's what the NFL does. 
The NFL softened about seven or eight years ago considerably the rules regarding celebrations. You can do the group celebrations, and we see some great ones. You can, you can use the ball as a prop. You can you know, do certain things you used to not be able to do, but you still can't use external props. And we've seen guys get fined for jumping into the kettle, doing the kettle as whack-a-mole, putting money in the kettle. I would say stashing a turkey leg in the kettle and getting it out and eating it would probably fall within the Joe Horn cell phone under the padding of the goalpost category and result in a fine. I wish it wouldn't, and maybe it won't. I, I mean, why put the kettle there at all if you're not going to let players incorporate the kettle into their celebrations? And the reality is, like they're always looking for something different. You can't just jump in the kettle every year. You're trying to go next level. You're trying to take the bit another step farther. Like maybe next year, a live turkey is going to come out of the kettle. I don't know. And then maybe the year after that, they butcher the live turkey on the sideline. I don't know. Maybe there's going to be a pilgrim's costume in there that, you know, you're going to jump in if you're Dak Prescott and do a quick change into the pilgrim costume and get out and run around on the field on Thanksgiving. There's always that push to do something new and do something different. But the problem is the kettle. The kettle is what the law would call an attractive nuisance. It's there. Hey, it's the it's the it's the freaking apple tree. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Thou shalt not eat the forbidden fruit. Why'd you put the tree there anyway? If you don't want us to eat the fruit, why is the tree there? If you don't want us to mess with the kettle, why is the kettle there? You know, it's like the school, you got the strict rule when it's recess, you can't leave the grounds. Well, they put a Ferris wheel right on the other side of the school grounds. You expect the kids not to flock to the Ferris wheel? They put the kettle right there. What do you think? It's a giant kettle big enough for a human being to get inside of it. What the hell do you expect, NFL? So if you're going to let them put the kettle there, let the players have their fun with the kettle. So I know rules are rules. But come on, let's have a dispensation. Let's have a Thanksgiving exception. Let's have a red kettle exemption. Put it in the rule book. The kettle can be used as props. Turkey legs can be stashed in the kettle. Live turkeys can be put in the kettle. Pilgrim costumes can be put in the kettle. It's just ridiculous. Just... Don't put the kettle out there, NFL. Don't let Jerry Jones put the kettle out there. It's going to draw those kinds of reactions. And it's ultimately great. If you're trying to support Salvation Army, it's great. We're talking about the red kettle. And and maybe the fine is part of the madness. Maybe Jerry's right. Just put the fine money into the Salvation Army. You're talking about the whole thing. You're increasing awareness of the red kettle. Not that we're not aware of the red kettle. I mean, this is the time of year where everywhere you go, Somebody's ringing that damn bell. I mean, like, how much money do I have to give you to get you to stop ringing the bell anytime I walk up to the door? And I'm sorry. I, I like, under certain circumstances, the sound of bells ringing is very soothing. And, you know, but just that constant chinga, 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 chinga. Like, there's a point where enough. Like, like really, how much can I give you to stop? <laughs> Like, can I, what's your budget? What's your target? 
Like how much are you trying to raise with this kettle this year outside of this store that I go to all the time? What is it? I'll write you the check. Go home. Your work is done. Take the bell, take the kettle and go home. I may have to consider that. I don't go to many stores. I don't do much. I, it occurred to me not that long ago that I'm basically on house arrest. I was watching the documentary and somebody in it was on house arrest. And when the person explained what they were allowed to do while on house arrest, I realized when I'm home, I'm basically on house arrest. I go to the same places that someone on house arrest would be allowed to go to and nowhere else like someone on house arrest. Other than the fact that I fly to Connecticut every weekend during the season, but that's for work too. Like I basically am on house arrest and I would pay good money for the Salvation Army kettle person to go on house arrest and get out from in front of the store where I go and have to listen to that damn bell. I'm serious. I'm going to say, what's your budget? What's your quota? What's your number? Here's the check. Just, and I, you don't have to clear out all, just, you know, I'll tell you, here's my schedule. Here's my schedule for the month. Here's when I'm coming. Just don't be here when I'm coming for the remainder of the month. All right. Uh, one other thing before I answer questions. God, I, I, so that's not quite been an hour, but we're getting there. Huh. Okay. Hard knocks. In-season hard knocks. Had a little news about this yesterday that's probably going to get overlooked. But when I watched the first episode of the in-season hard knocks this year with the Dolphins, it was obvious the Dolphins want nothing to do with it. They've said it. But the meeting where Mike McDaniel greets the team as they come back from their bye week break, it's clear. It's clear McDaniel wants nothing to do with it. And why should he? He's got enough to worry about without having to also, on top of everything else he has to do as coach of an NFL team in the stretch run of the season, worry about the extent to which the process and the product of in-season hard knocks is going to potentially distract his players. He doesn't want it to, but he has to worry about whether it will. Maybe it won't, but he has to worry about whether it will. I got enough shit to worry about, NFL. Why are you making me as the coach of a playoff contender, worry about this. There's so much obsession in the NFL about competitive balance and competitive integrity. And you're going to pick one team that's in the playoff hunt and say, you get to deal with this thing that no one else has to deal with. You get to worry about what's going to show up on Tuesday night every week for as long as you're still alive in the playoff chase and in the postseason once it comes along. You have to worry about the impact of that. You have to worry in advance what is going to be used against us? What are we going to be able to catch and filter out? Are we going to use good judgment? Are we going to use bad judgment? Do I have time to watch the whole episode and screen it to make sure that there's nothing in there? Am I going to carve out that extra hour to watch it? Or am I going to trust that somebody else is going to make the right decision? What is going to get through the five hole that's going to create a problem for us? You know, there was a scene about the universal language of ass whooping that you can go to Greece and if you see someone beating someone up, you don't need to be able to speak the same language to say it. And it, you know, could that be problematic? It kind of stretched out for a while and, you know, Tyree kills making kind of a thing about it. And we know his history, even though they didn't mention it during hard knocks, like it gets a little awkward. Do you want that to be something that you have to deal with when none of the other playoff contenders have to deal with it? So, what I learned as I was poking around on how the Dolphins ended up on hard knocks, because I asked the NFL when it was first announced and they ignored me as they often do when they don't want to answer the question. They just ignore me, forces me to ask it again, forces me to remember to ask it again. Well, I forgot to go back and ask a second time. So I'll say I asked them late last month 
and they didn't respond. But I have found out there's a formula for determining who's on in-season hard knocks. It's similar to the formula for who's on preseason hard knocks. And the preseason hard knocks formula is the teams are exempt if they have a first-year head coach, new head coach, doesn't have to be a brand new head coach, just a new coach for their team. Two, they've done it within the last 10 years. And three, they've made it to the playoffs either the last two seasons. The in-season formula is the first two, but not the third. Doesn't matter if you've made it to the playoffs. Doesn't matter if you're making it to the playoffs. That doesn't matter. As long as you don't have a new coach this year, and as long as you haven't done it in the last 10 years, you can be tapped on the shoulder. Now, I don't know whether or not that means preseason and in-season, because this is only the third year of in-season hard knocks. It was Cardinals, Colts, and now the Dolphins. If preseason applies as well, then then that knocks a few other teams out of the mix. But it doesn't help the Dolphins because they did preseason hard knocks 2012. So the window was open. If if that 10-year window applies both to preseason and in-season, and I can't see why it wouldn't, but if it does, doesn't matter for the Dolphins. So they got forced to do it. They didn't want to do it. And it's highly unfair to them. If I'm a Dolphins fan, I'm pissed about this. Why does my team have to worry about this? If I'm the Dolphins, I'm upset about it. If I'm Mac McDaniel, I'm livid about it. Why do I have to worry about it? And John Harbaugh doesn't. And uh, Doug Peterson doesn't. And Andy Reid doesn't. And, uh, Chiefs would have been a great candidate, but you know what? They had Patrick Mahomes on the Netflix show. So, oh, we don't need the Chiefs. We already made our money off of showcasing Patrick Mahomes. So I that, that's the other point, too. My son and I were talking about this last night. And I think I mentioned this in the story yesterday. Is it worth it to the NFL? Is it worth it to put one of your teams at a competitive disadvantage because they have to worry about this on top of everything else? What are you getting out of it, NFL? What's the bonus? In season, late season, we got Monday night. We got Thursday night. We just have three games on Thursday. We got six standalone games this week between Monday night and Monday night. Monday night, we had the Chiefs-Eagles game. The three games on Sunday. Hell, we got seven if you count that, right? One, two, three, four. Black Friday, Sunday night football, and then we got Monday night Bears-Vikings. We got a lot of standalone games. We got a lot of content. Why do you need an hour on Tuesday night where you've got more content? You've got more stuff. Why do you need that? What are you getting out of that? How much money are you making out of it? How much exposure are you getting out of it? And what's the cost? The cost is you're creating an extra distraction for one playoff team that other playoff teams don't have. That's not fair. Whoever it is in any given year, if it's a playoff contender that gets the assignment, it is unfair to them to have that burden of worrying about what's going to be said, what's going to make it to the show, how's it going to affect the team. You know, McDaniel spoke earlier this week in terms of the safe space. The safe space has been invaded. That's a factor too. Even if there's never a distraction directly from the show, the mere fact that they're their room has been invaded by cameras and microphones, changes the dynamic. It just does. And that's your place where you should be able to not have to worry about what is said or how it's said. You just shouldn't have to. There shouldn't be anything happening there that would take that and put it out into public view. So I'm with the Dolphins on this. It stinks. And it's a distraction and it is a competitive disadvantage. All right, let me answer some questions. Hopefully there aren't many because I've been 
I've been rambling on longer than I thought. All right, let's go. Where is it? Here we go. Question time. I took a quick skim, and I'm also going to take a quick drink of water here. All right. PFDPM Posse, with modern NFL players working out longer and more, harder and more tailored training regimens, 365 days a year. Why are injuries occurring more often, and why don't we see more players, like at the running back position, able to have long and productive careers, like Emmett Smith? Some would say that the absence of intense two-a-days, full contact, tackle to the ground, that that's one of the reasons why players aren't as durable when it's time to go play full contact, tackle to the ground football that the callus you would otherwise have isn't there and it makes you more susceptible to injury. I don't know how you quantify that, but I've heard that from people in the game that, and I don't know whether it's just wistfully wishing for the good old days or whatever, but the argument has been made that because practices aren't as strenuous and demanding and risky physically as they used to be, it sets the stage for greater injuries during the games. Also players keep, keep getting bigger and stronger and faster. They just do. Something's got to give when those bigger and stronger and faster players crash into each other. So I think that has something to do with it as well. Um, it's just a, it's just a very physical and violent game. Even as they try to make it safer, you still have bone and cartilage and ligaments and muscle that are going to get injured when those bodies crash into each other. PFTP and Posse, what is your favorite Turkey Day memory, food, and activity? I tweeted about this on Wednesday night. I love the night before Thanksgiving because that's when my mom would bake pumpkin pies and she would have those little like Pyrex glass bowls where she'd put the extra pie filling in and bake that. And it was like a little pudding cup. Back in the days when people made their own pudding at home, you didn't just peel the top off and eat it. You made the pudding at home and there would be butterscotch and there would be chocolate. You'd have that from time to time. But, but once a year, the pudding bowls would be replaced with the pumpkin pie filling and that was always it was just kind of like the world slows down a little bit it's the calm before the storm of thanksgiving day it's kind of nice it's a rare and unique feeling you get it on christmas eve those that's really it the night before thanksgiving and christmas eve those are the two days a year where it just feels like the world slows down a little bit and kind of braces for what's coming next also i used to love playing football on thanksgiving i have some fun memories of the thanksgiving day football game it's been 20 plus years since i've done it and i can't do it now because i can't run for very long i can run but then like it would be like i'd be good for one snap because my knees are shot uh, i can ride a bike all day every day if i have to but i just can't run so i miss playing football on thanksgiving morning that, that those were some fun memories uh especially if i made it out of the game uninjured PFDP and Posse, since I'm currently sitting next to a deer stand in the woods, hunting with my son-in-law, waiting for legal shooting time in two minutes. Have you ever hunted? If so, what kind of did you like it? I, I hunted one time and it wasn't really hunting. I was, I was visiting my uncle in Tennessee and there was a squirrel that was messing with his, his garden and he, wanted, he gave me the BB gun. He said, take care of the squirrel. And uh, long story short, I did, and it scarred me emotionally, and I have no desire to ever hunt again, anything, under any set of circumstances, ever. I'm not saying that people shouldn't. I've got no desire to do it. And now that I've become a dog person, I'm even less equipped to process the concept of killing another living thing, other than an insect, obviously. Uh, but, you know, deer rabbits 
turkeys. I don't know. Turkeys are kind of worthless and they taste good. I still don't. I just, I don't, it's not for me. It's not for me. The idea of killing another living thing is not for me. And I went through it 40 plus years ago and it really did scar me. I still kind of think about it from time to time. It, and it's, it's just, it's not for me. It's not for me. I know we need to control the herd and we don't want cars running into the deer that, that haven't been, you know, humane. I don't know how humane it is to put a bullet through. It's not really humane. And then you gut them and it's good. Anyway, it's not for me. If it's for you, that's fine. It's not for me. All right. Uh, Tom Marshall. One more important question. Did you throw Macy a Thanksgiving bone? There was no bone to give her. And you got to be careful with bones, with dogs, because the bones can, can wreak havoc. But she did get... Now, what we try to do, because she goes nuts. She loves being around the family. And it's been a while since people have been over. We tried to keep her downstairs behind a gate. She got through it somehow. That was a first. She found a way to get through it. She comes running upstairs, jumping all over everybody. But eventually she was around... And she always comes to me because I'm the softest touch. I'm the easiest mark for food. She wants bread. And there's a certain cookie that we make. It's called a galette. It's like a thick pizzelle. We had some of those and she was going nuts. She's drooling all over the place. And so she, she had her treats from my plate. From I get to eat extra because part of what I eat goes directly to Macy. So she was happy to be around everybody, but she learned how to escape. We're, we're going to need to come up with a better way to contain Macy on holidays because she has found a way to escape from her gate and get upstairs. Manuel Villa, how do owners go from being bad to good? The last three years have been rough for my Texans and Cal McNair has been the punching bag, but it seems... There has been a major turnaround. Is it as simple as getting the head coach quarterback combination right and staying the hell away? Yes. It's also important to get Jack Easterby the hell out of town. Jack Easterby was the guy who had, had hypnotized, mesmerized, somehow gotten control of the organization and Cal McNair fell for it. Once they moved on from him, it allowed Nick Casario to do his thing and D'Amico Ryan's to do his thing. And it's working. The best owners make their decisions about who they're going to hire they hire them and they get out of the way. Just be a fan. You don't have to have a spoon in the stew. You don't have to be involved in day-to-day -day operations. You can be consulted for the big stuff and you can bring some stuff to the table. There are some things that are transferable from one industry to the next, but the idea that David Tepper is just going to show up in Carolina and say, I made a shitload of money as a head fund manager and I know how to run a business and I'm going to run this business, even though I've never run a football team and don't know anything about football other than what I picked up while watching it on TV over the years. That's not good for anybody. So stay out of the way and let it go. All right. Another one from Manuel Villa. What's your opinion on the Titans owning the rights to the Oilers? Doesn't it seem right that Houston retains them? As a 33-year-old Texans fan, I have no history with the Oilers other than the jerseys. Helmets look cool and would be great for my team to wear. Hey, look, like, you know what they should have done? Houston should have done what Cleveland did. Should have negotiated under the threat of litigation as the Oilers were packing up and moving to Tennessee. Work out a deal where they leave the Oilers behind. They changed the name anyway. They changed it to Titans after a couple of years, force them to come up with a new name now and keep Oilers in Houston for when Houston gets a team again, just like the Browns did. It was a failure of the folks running the show in Houston at the time. It would have been easy to do. And Bud Adams probably would have happily given up Oilers because he was giving it up anyway after a couple of years in Tennessee. Tom Marshall, is it time to say trading away Tyree Kill was a mistake? 
It wasn't last year. And they won a Super Bowl by doing it. It's kind of like the Rams approach. Like there was a bill to pay on the back end of winning the Super Bowl, but we won a Super Bowl. But for what the Chiefs are trying to do, which is create a dynasty and win more than just two, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. Last year, maybe the whole thing fueled them, inspired the receivers. This year, it's not working. And Tyreek Hill would have caught that pass that Marquez Valdez-Scantling dropped. And maybe you don't even need to have to score a touchdown late in the game if you have Tyreek Hill. So, yeah, it was a mistake. If your goal is to win four, five, six, it's a mistake to not have Tyreek Hill for as long as you can have Tyreek Hill, even if he's a pain in the ass. Some pains in the ass are worth it. Lawrence Taylor was a pain in the ass. He was worth it. Randy Moss was a pain in the ass. He was worth it. Tyreek Hill, apparently, a couple years ago, became a pain in the ass for the Chiefs. Worth it because of what he can do for your team. Worth it. And yes, it was a mistake, I believe, for the Chiefs to not find a way to keep him along or around for as long as possible. Tom Marshall, I have one more question. Could Dak be the MVP without the Cowboys winning the NFC East? I addressed that earlier. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, Manuel Villa has a question about a possible NFL draft lottery. It's not going to happen. Draft lottery is not going to happen because it acknowledges in a roundabout way that there's a connection between being bad and getting the best picks in the draft. They would have done it by now. It's just not going to happen unless you can do it in a way, and I've suggested in the past, equal shot for all non-playoff teams. So there's no incentive to be even worse to get more balls in the hopper. Playoffs, you're not in the lottery. Non-playoffs, you're in, and everybody has the same chance, although people don't like that either because then the worst team possibly ends up with the 20th pick in the draft. And just do it for round one. The other rounds, do it based on how you finish. Round one, that's the one where you need to remove the incentive to tank because there is a very real incentive to tank, and some teams tank. But what the NFL has basically decided, as long as you don't say to the world, we are tanking and we're not joking about it, they're not going to do anything about it. All right, I should probably wrap this up. I'm looking through here for some more questions. We got some good ones. We got some good ones. Pauline, our good friend in the UK, do you think Denver can sustain this improvement and make the playoffs? Also, did you manage to stay away for Cowboys commanders? Um, let me take the last question first. No. And it. I was going to drink a Red Bull, but I felt so bloated from the food. I thought like if I drank the Red Bull, I would explode like Mr. Creosote and Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. So no, I did not have the Red Bull. And yes, just when I thought I was fine, it happens to me every year. Just when I think I'm fine, I'm out. I don't have a chance to do it. And of course, they take pictures of me and they text it around to the different chains. Here I am looking like I was dead, like, you know, head back, mouth open a little bit, drool maybe. I don't know. Of course, that would be proof of life. But I, did, I didn't make it to the end of the first quarter. But I only slept for a little bit. And then when it was 31-10, about 7.15 Eastern, getting ready to go down to the barn to watch the last game, I did just get on the couch and say, I'll set the alarm for 8 o'clock and whatever happens the rest of the way happens because it's not like the commanders are going to win this game. So I did take a deliberate 45-minute nap. Uh, and I missed the turkey leg celebration. I missed the Duran Bland pick six because it's just it was 31-10. to 10. Give me a break. The commanders weren't coming back. Jordan Kane, with regards, uh oh, uh oh, this, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read this question without reading it in advance. Let's see what Jordan Kane's asking about the Peacock game. With regards to the exclusive Peacock regular season and postseason game, what do you say to people who can't watch live? I work every Saturday night and come home and watch college football, but it would apply for these two games. Will a replay of the game be available on Peacock right after? 
I don't know the answer to that question. I'll find out. I mean, usually, yes, like on Amazon, you can watch the game after the game has ended. And if not, NFL Plus has it. But I'd like to think Peacock makes it available. I don't know the answer to that question. I do know this. It's like $1.99 a month. Is that what it is? $1.99 a month, Black Friday sale. So you can have Peacock for the December 23rd game between the Bills and the Chargers and the exclusive Peacock-only wildcard game. I mean, if you don't already have Peacock, like 30 million people do, Peacock is an excellent service. All the Office episodes are on there. All of the Office mega episodes, extended episodes are on there as well. Oh, by the way, PFT Live is on there too. Oh, Paul, I keep saying, oh, I didn't answer the other question from Pauline. I I think Denver can sustain the improvement. It's just going to be hard to go from five and five into one of the spots. The AFC continues to be a tough, tough conference. And there's going to be a very good team that is playing very good football that could get hot in the postseason that just doesn't make it because there are too many very good teams in the AFC. But we've seen a softening and maybe there is an opening there for the Broncos to keep doing what they're doing. All right, I should probably wrap this up. It has been well over an hour. Um, Daniel White, do you think the Browns can get the win at mile high? I have picked the Browns to win, even though the Browns are not favored. I'm surprised the Broncos are favored. The Browns have a suffocating defense. They just beat the Steelers with Dorian Thompson Robinson getting his second NFL start. I picked the score 17 to nine. I made it my best bet. Browns getting like two and a half points. And also the under, it was 35. The under in that game is another one of my best bets for this weekend. Let's call it there. There's a few more, but uh, it's stuff I've I've either addressed today or I've addressed recently or will be addressing in the future. Next Wednesday, another edition of PFTPM where I'll answer your questions and talk about whatever is happening. PFT Live returns on Monday. Check out Football Night in America, 7 o'clock Eastern on NBC and Peacock on Sunday night in advance of Ravens Chargers. Can the Chargers get it right? Can they save Brandon Staley? Can the Ravens keep their hold currently for now on the top seed in the AFC. Great game on Sunday. Great game today. Great game. Hopefully a great game between the Dolphins and the Jets. Check that out as well. And we will see you again Monday for PFT Live and next Wednesday for PFT PM. Thanks for some of your time. Have a great weekend.